black and white that, that sometimes I read it and I go, oh, this is horrible news. You read bits of it and you go, wow, John, you make me wonder if I'm a Christian. Because I sin and I do this and I do that. And then the other bits of John, what I love about 1 John is that he is constantly going, Christians are this, Christians are this, Christians are this, but Christ. But look to Christ. And his whole thing is, this is who we are in Christ. This is what we are called to be. And yes, you're not it perfectly, but you have a Savior. And that song we sang just matches so wonderfully with that. The situation, if you recall, in John... Sorry, this is not sitting nicely on my ear. The situation in John, he's writing to the church probably in Ephesus... How's that? If it falls off, that's fine. Um, he's writing to the church in Ephesus, a church that is besieged by false teachers. They used to be part of the church. Um, in the end, they left the church. They, they, their big teaching seems to be that they refuse to admit that Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, one of the contemporaries, uh, the Apostle John had a disciple, I, I think it was either Polycarp or Irenaeus, I forget which order it is, uh, who then had a disciple, and the disciple of the disciple said that John the Apostle really didn't get on well with a bloke called Serinthus. He was one of these false teachers, it seems, and he had this great scheme about how Jesus wasn't actually God's son, but a container that God inhabited for a while. And this is the kind of thing. And so John is writing to them going, guys, I want you to know who Jesus is. And the reason I want you to know is so that our joy may be complete. And as we'll see, as we've heard on the reading today, the reason I'm writing to you guys is I want you to know how to tell good teachers from false teachers. I want you to know how to tell if you're a Christian or not. But mostly I want you to know that you are God's children and that you have eternal life. I want you to know that you are, as Christians, as those who trust Jesus, people who live in fellowship with God. And, and if you've been around for at least one sermon, you're probably sick and tired of me saying that fellowship, for John, uh, it, it's, it's, got this, it, it's not having tea after the church. Fellowship for John is deeper than that. It's it's, it's a word that speaks about partnership. We are united with God. In fact, in classical Greek, I've said this every week, the word refers to marriage. It's the most intimate of connections that you have with God. And John says, guys, you are the ones who are like that with God, not the false teachers with their new ideas. And, their, and, and you, know, you know what people are like. It's not just new ideas. It's like well, I suppose you backwater Christians have got this idea, but no, we have new truth. We've gone beyond the Bible. We've gone beyond the basics of Christianity. John writes because he wants them to stay true to Jesus. And unlike their complex schemes for how one has a relationship with God, John says, actually, guys, it's pretty simple. If you believe, chapter 5, verse 1, if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, if you believe that Jesus from Nazareth is God's chosen one, then you are a child of God. Isn't that so simple? 
You can go to Bible college, you can spend years studying theology, and John comes, he says, guys, let me, let me one-liner, give you a one-liner summary of the gospel. If you believe Jesus is your Savior, God's chosen one, the Christ, you are God's child. Okay, unpacking that takes, takes a bit more. That's why we've got the Bible. But, but this is more than just a theoretical, I believe that this is probably the case. This is a trusting of your life to that fact. This is trusting God's incredible love. Last week we saw, and I don't know about you, but, but for me it was a, it was a light bulb moment, um, that a byproduct of loving God is loving one another. We don't, we don't, we, we can't force ourselves to love one another, but when we love God, because God loves us, we love one another just sort of as a side effect. When we love God, we, we want to do what He wants. We want to please Him. Have you ever noticed when a couple is a new couple, it's very much, oh, what can I do to please you? Please, 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 can I fetch you a mug of water? I'm a bit like that still. But, but says my wife with a shake of her head, oh. <laughs> but, but that's the sort of thing. The more you love someone, who's been married the longest in the church in this morning? Who's been married for ages? John and Helen. Helen, does your husband do stuff to make you happy? It's putting you on the spot, isn't it? <laughs> I know. John, does Helen, does, does, she, does she enjoy making you happy? Always. Because she loves you. And because she knows that you love her. And you know that you love each other, and so you want to please each other. That, that's, that's what love does. Because we love God, I think John says, we will want to please him and do what he says. And he says, doing this, God's commandments are not burdensome. Um, I want to suggest they become less duty, more joy and honor. Why? How? Because by our faith, we have defeated this evil world. This evil world which tempts us to live by its principles and, and to follow its rules rather than God's will. Being ill is a terrible, terrible thing. But what is worse is if you don't even know that you're ill. I heard a story on the radio today about a guy who had, um, I think it was thyroid problems. His metabolism was really, really slow. He'd sit around all day just vegging and then go to bed. And 30 years he was like this. They diagnosed him. They gave him some medicine. His metabolism sped up and about a year later he was dead. He had a cancer growing in him and he didn't realize it for 30 years because his metabolism was so slow. And when they sped up his metabolism, it sped up everything, and the cancer grew, and it took him. Isn't that incredible? Here was a man who was dying from cancer and didn't know it. Many Christians 
we read these sort of things, every child of God defeats this evil world, and we try to defeat this evil world. And we end up spiritually fatigued, and we end up failing whenever we try to generate our own halos. Because look at what John says. Yes, every child of the world defeats this evil world. And we achieve this victory through our faith. Yes, my faith. If I only trust God enough, then, then I will defeat this evil world. No. The power is not in my faith. The power is in the one in whom I put my faith. The one in whom I trust. Jesus, God's chosen one, the Christ, has overcome on the cross. He is God. He is the Son of God. Only those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God can overcome this world. Only Jesus is powerful enough to snatch us from the jaws of death and to snatch us from the grip of this world and its temptations and its lures. Only Jesus. I read a great line in one of my commentaries that said something along the lines of, um, Jesus defeated death, and if he defeated death, he can defeat anything. Only Jesus can defeat anything. Only Jesus can defeat this evil world. Well, fine, but, but how does my trust in Jesus defeat this evil world? How can every child of God defeat this evil world? How can it make doing God's will not a burden, but a pleasure and a duty? Because sometimes, let's be honest, sometimes it feels a bit burdensome to do God's will, doesn't it? Where God says, love your fellow brothers and Christians, and sometimes you just want to beat them over the head with a shovel. That's probably because we're not fully like Christ yet, and we're, we're still human this side of eternity. But I think... We defeat the evil world by trusting Jesus because we are aware of the great rescue that has gone on to save us. We are now aware of who we are and who we were. We have, and John's gone through this a lot, he says we have the Spirit of God living in us, encouraging us, prompting us, forming us to be like Him. We are on His team. We are in fellowship with God. We are on the, the winning team. And as we know Him more, the more we have a growing desire to honor Him. You see, what's worse than being ill is being ill and not knowing it. We have defeated this world because we have been rescued. The medicine is in us. And one day it will take full effect and we will be made like Jesus. God will remake us. And what we have defeated already in part in our lives, because we, we still want to hit people over the head with shovels, one day we will be transformed completely into the image of Christ. And we will be able to stand up then and say, See, 
I've always known that I've defeated this evil world because I am with the one who has won. The good news says that anyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, anyone who believes that Jesus is the Son of God, is God's child. Full stop. Most people today, most historians would agree Jesus was a real man. John had a, a similar related issue in, in his day that he was writing to. These, these false teachers who said, yes, Jesus was a man, but he wasn't actually God. John wants us to see that, that, uh, that in actual fact, Jesus is the Son of God, that we have reason to trust that Jesus is the Son of God, our Christ. Uh, because if we can trust that, then we can put our trust and our faith in that, and we can know that we are God's children. And John says, well, I've got three witnesses for you. The first witness I want to give you is water. The next one is blood. The next one is the Spirit. And finally, I want to tell you about God's own witness. Now, this, this whole thing where John speaks about the water and the blood is, frankly, confusing. It's the kind of terminology which his church that he was writing to would have gone, oh, of course, John means this. There's different opinions, but I want to suggest to you the one that, that to me makes the most sense. John says water, and I think he is referring here to the time when Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan. Uh, remember, John looked at him and said, See, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus was baptized as he came out of the water. The Spirit comes down, settles on him like a dove, and we hear God's voice from heaven. Uh, Matthew three seventeen says, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Now, you remember our friend Serinthus who really needed a better name. He, he uh, thought, definitely, yes, I can agree, Jesus was shown to be the, God, the Son of God at his baptism. Because at his baptism, said Serinthus, Jesus the man was inhabited by God. God settled on him. But, said Serinthus, God is God and God would never die for us. How, how does that work? It cannot be. And so it, it's, it's got to be true, said Serinthus, that before Jesus died on the cross, the God that had settled on him at his baptism left. In other words, Jesus wasn't God's son, but just a temporary container that God used and then abandoned. Jesus wasn't God in his person. He was just used by God. John, on the other hand, says, no, I've, I've actually got three witnesses for you. The first witness is the water. Well, let, let's have common ground there. Yes, the water says Jesus is the Son of God. But, says John, equally true is the blood. And I love how he does this. He says, um, not by water only, but by water and blood. He makes that clear. He says, um, I want to go past water. Verse 6 there, I want to go water and blood. What is he talking about? He's talking about, I think, Jesus dying on the cross, shedding his blood. And I think John says, as we look at the cross of Christ where he died, there we see God's witness to Jesus being the Son of God. At the cross... God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. 
The good news is Christ crucified, says Paul in Roman, in 1 Corinthians. A stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. John has spent time last week in chapter 4 saying to us that, that God's vast love is shown in his sending his only son as a sacrifice for our sins. And remember, as Jesus breathes his last on the cross, the centurion looks and says, surely he was the son of God. Says John to us, there are two witnesses at least. At the baptism where, where the voice says, this is my son. At the cross where we see God's love on display. And a, a, a man saying, this is God's son. But says John, I'm not going to settle for two witnesses. I've got three to bring to the party. And the third witness is the spirit. Now remember, these false teachers were very spiritual people. They said that all of their teaching was, was by the Spirit. Well, John's already said to us that nobody speaking by the Spirit will deny that Jesus is the Son of God. And he says here in chapter 5 that, that the water and the blood and the Spirit are all in agreement that Jesus is the Son of God. So how does the Spirit testify that Jesus is God's Son? The water speaks of his baptism, the blood is death. I want to suggest to you that the Spirit speaks to his resurrection. In Romans 1, verses 3 to 4, Paul tells us that in the resurrection, Jesus was shown to be the Son of God by the Spirit, who raised him in power. He didn't stay dead, and he, he never died again. That shows us that he was more than just a man. At Pentecost, uh, which is only about 40 days, well, no, bit more than 40 days, only about 60 or 70 days away from us now, at Pentecost, the Spirit was poured out into God's church. And as a result, they, they spoke boldly about the truth that Jesus is God's Son. And, and, and there was a huge crowd there, all of whom would have heard the, the facts, but all of a sudden, 3,000 of them says, yes, I'm going to put my trust in Him. I believe that He is the Son of God. And even now the Spirit lives in us and opens eyes and convinces us of the truth and, and forms Jesus in us. Says John, we have three witnesses here in the life of Jesus. We have it at his baptism, at his death, and his resurrection. And at all three of these key moments in the life and ministry of Jesus, we see witnesses saying, this is not just a man. This is not just a God-shaped container. This is the Son of God. And since, says John, we believe human testimony, surely we can believe the greater testimony that comes from God. Because God himself has testified about his Son. These witnesses are God's witnesses, but, but God witnesses to Jesus throughout the whole of the Bible, throughout the whole of the history of God's interaction with his people. God has been witnessing that only in Jesus can there be rescue and salvation. Those who believe in his son know that God's testimony is true, says John, and, and says, well, if you don't believe God, then you're actually saying God's a liar. And this is God's testimony. He has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. 
And whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have God's Son does not have life. Anyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is a child of God. Anyone who believes that Jesus is the Son of God has overcome this world. Anyone who puts their trust and their hope in Him have life. Anyone who has the Son has life. And John spent a whole lot of time saying that it is because of Jesus that we can trust God. And more than that, it's because of Jesus that we can have a relationship with God, that we can know God. And Jesus said in Luke chapter 17, verse 3, that if you want to know what eternal life is, it's this that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have God's Son does not have life. And life is knowing God. You see, our victory isn't just a victory from this evil world. Our victory is a victory to life. And since eternal life is defined by knowing God and His Son, it's something that we have already. Because we are God's children, because we know Him who loves us, we can approach Him boldly. Yes, we can approach Him boldly on the day of judgment, but we can approach Him boldly even today. Isn't that, isn't that just a... Are you sure, Nick? And John goes further than that. He says, not only can we be confident when we approach God, but, but we know that when we speak to God, He hears us. Creator of the cosmos so huge, they found the, the world, the universe's biggest black hole this week, 12.8 billion light years away. And God is in control of all of this, and He hears us. Because we know him, and we know him because Jesus came to show us God's love and to show us who God is. And we put our trust in him, and we know that he is the son of God and the the rescuer from God. And you think, wow, this is incredible. How how on earth could we come and stand with confidence before a God that big? And and Nick, you must be crazy to think that he would even hear us. And, And then John says, well... Uh, If you're shocked now, sit down because I've got bigger news for you. Not only does he hear us, but when we ask for whatever is according to his will, he gives it to us. And the smart ones, or rather, let me not say smart, let me say cynical ones, are sitting there going, I see what you did there, Nick. You threw in that little according to his will. Because basically what you're saying is, if we ask for what God wants to give us, God will give it to us. You see, you see the, of course he's going to give it to us because he wants to give it to us. You see, the thing is, the more we know God, the more we plumb the depths of his love, the more we love him, the more we want to please him, 
the more the Spirit forms His character in us, the more, the more I start to want what God wants. And one day when Jesus returns and makes me like him, what I want most in the whole wide world, new world, I might as well ask Myra because she'll want the same thing. Might as well ask you, Peter. I might as well ask God because it's all the same. My will and my want will be aligned with his For example, God wants his children today to live out the victory that we have over this evil world. God wants us to live in the victory that is ours, that he's spoken about in the first five verses. Who will stand with me and live victoriously? Who will this week not sin? Yeah. As Christians, we are victors who still battle the temptation and the lure of sin. Because our salvation is ours, but it has not yet wrought its full effect. Well, no, even as I say that, that sounds wrong. Our salvation is ours, it's fully effective, but, but we are not yet the people that we will be. We are only that in Christ at the moment. And so, says John to us, when you see another person who is victorious in Jesus, caught up in sin, pray for them. Because God longs for his children to be like him. And if you, this is one of those prayers that if you pray, God, I've, I've seen Joe Bloggs over there, he's really struggling with this particular sin, and, and, and Lord, I, I, I'm, I'm not trying to gossip to you, God. By the way, don't gossip to God, he knows everything. Just say, God, I want him to be victorious. And God, I want him to be praying for me as well. Wouldn't that be fantastic if, if, if we don't only navel-gaze about our own sins, but, but we love God enough that when we look at our brothers and sisters, we go, God, you want better for that person. God, I, I pray that you would help Mark with that issue. I pray that you would help uh, Pam with that, and Helen with that, and John with that, and Myra with that, and Taryn with that. And, and it's not that I'm spotting all of their horrible things, Lord, and... and, and gossiping about them to you, but Lord, I, I, I just long for them to know you. And, and look, I'm not saying go around to everyone and keep a sharp eye out to see what sin they are committing. But if you notice something, you, you know what we tend to do? We notice, we go, you know, Joe Bloggs is always saying nasty things about other people in the church. John, have you heard about, isn't it irritating how Joe Bloggs does that? It's such a pain. And then John says, shush, or, or if he's more realistic, he goes, I know, isn't it? John says, you know, God longs for that person to be victorious. If you love God, don't you long for that person to be victorious? Instead of gossiping about it, pray about it. 
and, and, and don't worry, they'll be praying about you because they'll be spotting stuff that you're doing. We do have a bit of a, and we're almost done here, but there's a little bit of an interesting thing here. He says, if you see a Christian brother or sister sinning in a way that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give that person life. But there is a sin that leads to death, and I'm not saying you should pray for those who commit it. All wicked actions are sin, but not every sin leads to death. And you read that and you go, what? And some of you go, what? It's 20 to 11 and he's starting this topic now? Let's be very quick. We're not going in depth there, but in the Old Testament, uh, you had two types of sins. You had inadvertent sins, and these were the sins that you committed accidentally or without realizing or, or anything like that. And for these sins, the Old Testament sacrificial system was set up. And then there were deliberate sins where you consciously and actively rebelled against God. And for that, the sacrificial system was no good to you. For that, you were either exiled or killed. Now we go, wow, I'm glad I'm a New Testament person. But says John in verse 18, we know that God's children do not make a practice of sinning. Christians don't deliberately set up sinful habits. Well, sometimes we do, but but perhaps John is differentiating between those who sin despite being a child of God and those who deliberately, consciously sin to spite God. You see the difference? One is sinning despite loving God and the other is sinning to spite God. I think John is maybe talking about what Peter means when he says in 2 Peter 2.20 that, that these are people who, who once knew God's love but have rejected it. And Peter says that they're worse off now than before they knew God. And, and Hebrews 6 says they they who, who, who had tasted the goodness of God but had now rejected him were, were crucifying Christ and ridiculing him again and again and again. I said we're not going into detail here, but I think John's emphasis here is, is on the church. John's concern here is for those who recognize Jesus to be the Son of God for those who call Jesus their Savior. John is saying here, when you see someone who loves Jesus sinning, you've got to know that God wants them not to do that. You've got to know that God wants them to be holy as He is holy. Pray for them. John's concern is for Christians who are stumbling, not those who have outright rejected God. Does some sin lead to death and, and other sin not lead to death? Hands, just show of hands. Who here has ever thought, I have committed the unpardonable sin? Who's ever wondered that? Thanks, Ross. Thanks, Colin. 
Thanks, Debbie. My hand's up as well, by the way. Because you read passages like this and you go, oh, there's a sin that leads to death? What? John has said time and again and just in our chapter, anyone who trusts that Jesus is the Christ, anyone who believes that Jesus is the Son of God, is a child of God, and anyone who has the Son has life. Full stop, period, the end. Perhaps the sin that leads to death is to so reject God that you refuse to accept that. Uh, A theologian called Plummer says that it's possible to starve your body so much that eating becomes impossible that even putting something in your mouth makes you gag. And it's also possible, he says, to so refuse God's grace and truth that you immunize yourself against it. All of which point is that if you are desperate for God's grace and truth, if you recognize that Jesus is the Son of God, you have not committed the unpardonable sin. Because anyone who believes that Jesus is the Son of God has the Son, and anyone who has the Son has life, which equals knowing God, which means you've got to be right with God. I like logic. It's good. Let's, let's finish here. Christians don't make a practice of sinning uh, because they want to please God. And, and that doesn't mean that Christians can't be stuck in sinful patterns and behaviors. Just ask the person sitting next to you. Um, but what sets a Christian apart is that they don't want to live in sin. If you find yourself stuck in a pattern of sin or a practice of sin, uh, there is hope for you. Uh, find someone to journey with you. And, and most of all, know that God's love for you cannot be shaken. Uh, fix your eyes on Jesus and, and remember this. Your personal battle might be hard, but the war is already won. Your personal battle might be hard, but the war is already won and you're on the winning team. And not even death can separate you. Jesus' promise is this, that Jesus, not the evil one, holds you tightly. Nothing can rip you out of his hands. He has come and he, he has given us understanding. The chains that once bound us are broken. We know God. Jesus has made him known to us. And that means we have life and God will never, ever, ever drop us. And John in his final line there says, don't push God away. May God, may Jesus, not anything else, be the beat of your heart. From now until eternity. And may it be that because of what he did. We're going to take up communion. We're going to, if you would pass that around for us, Mark. You see, it's because of what Jesus, could you pass that around for us, Steve? It's because of what Jesus did that, that we have life. His body broken for us. His blood poured out for us that makes us triumphant children.
He became sin who knew no sin that we might become his righteousness. There are three witnesses, the water, the blood, and the spirit. And it's because of the blood that we have been washed clean. And his spirit now lives in us. As you eat and as you drink, remember how much he loves us. Remember that nothing can separate you from his love. Remember that we are victors. Even though sometimes it feels that the battle wages, know that the war is won. And thank God for that.